Another year has come and gone. A new year is upon us. I remember being incredibly proud of the unity that our church was able to maintain at the end of 2020, given the controversial nature of that year. And I remain equally proud of the unity our church has maintained going into 2022, seeing how unfortunately the passing of time has not exactly healed our nation's wounds. In many areas, things seem to have only gotten worse. One of the primary difficulties of the last two years has been navigating through how the church relates to the state. Our present circumstances have sort of pushed the American church into new territory in this regard, and it's proved to be difficult terrain in more ways than one. But the good news for us is that we are not the first Christian people who have had to wrestle with how we relate, how we obey, how we maybe don't obey, to hostile governments. Many Christians throughout the history of the world, many Christians around the world today have been dealing with that for a long time. And one of those people was David himself. David himself understood, learned the lesson the hard way about he, as a believer in Yahweh, is to maintain what kind of relationship he maintains to a hostile, evil government. And so we learn an important lesson today. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. First Samuel 24, we will read this entire text together. If you would, please follow along with me from the beginning, for these are the very words of God. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went out on his way. And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. 
As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words Saul, to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, he will let him go. Will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. If you remember from chapter 23, Saul was on the brink of capturing David when God providentially caused him away, forced him away, by causing the Philistines to attack Israel. After Saul chased out the Philistines from Israel, he took 3,000 of his best men and he went back to the pursuit against David. Now, while they're looking for David, Saul enters this random cave to use the bathroom. We're all reminded of that ever-important children's book, Everybody Poops. Right? They even did it back then. He had to go into the cave to relieve himself. And while he is going to the bathroom, in the deeper recesses of the cave, just so happens to be David and some of his men. The men see and recognize Saul, and they tell David, apparently God given some prophecy. We don't know where this comes from, whether this is true or false, we're not sure. But they see God as providentially making the stars aligned. God has given Saul to you. It's time for you to go take care of your enemy. David, before killing Saul, chooses first to insult him. David very stealthily, with great stealth, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. It's important to understand that in the Hebrew culture, this was a sign of disrespect to royalty. We actually saw this earlier in 1 Samuel, I believe it was 15, when Samuel tells Saul that God is going to tear you from the kingdom. This was a reference to that idea of tearing the Lord's robe. The robe of the king represented his kingdom and his authority. And so if someone were to cut his robe or tear his robe, that was a symbolic act. It was a symbolic gesture of telling him he either will be or should be removed from office. It was an insult, a great insult. I, I like to think of it, this was basically David's version of let's go Brandon. But after David disrespects Saul, his conscience convicts him of his actions. And he repents. He regrets tearing Saul's robe. And even though his men continue to pressure David to go and kill Saul, David shuts them up. As a matter of fact, the ESV really doesn't use a very strong word. The ESV says persuaded. The Hebrew word is the same for cutting the rope. He cut them. He tore them down. The NIV really gets it right. The NIV says something along the lines of, he sharply rebuked them. David is serious. 
He shut them up. No harm will come to Saul. And after this, Saul leaves. David approaches him from a safe distance and uses the rope to prove that he could have killed Saul and he didn't. He proved to everyone, his men, to Saul and to Saul's men, that he is not just some reckless rebel jealous for Saul's power. But he is a man of principle and he is not against Saul. He does not hate Saul. David's choice to honor rather than harm Saul, it worked, even if only temporarily. And unfortunately, spoiler alert, you'll see this, this is only temporary repentance. But it at least gave David and his men some temporary respite. Saul is convicted by David's kindness. Weeping, he recognizes his own fault. He recognizes that David is the better man. And he even recognizes what God is doing. David will supplant me. And rightfully so. He is so convinced that David will, in fact, take the throne that he makes David swear a covenant not to cut off his family or his legacy when he does. And then both the parties go their separate ways. So what do we learn from this very pivotal, very famous story in 1 Samuel? We learn this very simple truth. Honor those the Lord has anointed over you. You have been called by God to give honor to those whom the Lord has anointed over you. The example that David leaves for us is that we are to show honor and respect to everyone who has legitimate authority above us. And David's example is especially helpful when we consider how evil Saul is. David shows restraint from harming Saul, even though Saul deserves to be harmed. He deserves it. He deserves to die. That's what he's merited. That's what he's earned. And yet, even though he is evil and wicked, David chooses to honor him. So in this, we learn that a person in authority over us is worthy of honor because of the position they hold, not because of the merit of their personal character. Saul's character merited disrespect, but the throne he occupied merited honor. Showing honor to the Lord's anointed is not always easy. Sometimes it's hard to know how to do it. How do I honor this person above me? Sometimes the passions of our flesh do not want to do it. I know how, but I don't want to. I don't like this person. And sometimes it's hard because we often, like David, find ourselves with angry mobs that put pressure on us to dishonor them. When David chose to honor this evil king, it forced him to stand up to his own posse. He had to fight off bloodthirsty desires on both sides of him. Saul is a bloodthirsty man. He is thirsty for David's blood. And David has been resisting him. He's been, he's been fighting back against Saul. But he's now found the same bloodthirsty desire in his own party. His men are now thirsty for Saul's blood. Saul is thirsty for his blood. And David is taking the, the honorable, principled position in the middle. I'm not bloodthirsty neither for my own blood or for Saul's. He has to fight off not just his enemies, but his friends. He has to fight with his friends 
in order to do the right thing. Sometimes showing honor to the Lord's anointed requires us to sharply rebuke our own political allies. And by the way, this has always been one of my primary fears for trying to join our church to public political rallies. I've been criticized in the past for not doing that. Now, I'm not saying these things are wrong. They're good. They're constitutional rights. They're glorious. If you, if you want to go do a political rally, honor, exercise your constitutional rights, by all means, you should do it, and you should not feel ashamed for doing it. But I just want to briefly tell you, this is why I am so afraid to encourage or push our church or try to unite our church with those kinds of things. Because I know that when I gather together in public with my political allies, many of them will not be compelled to show the same honor and respect to our mutual adversaries that I know the Lord compels me to show. In other words, that I am fearful of being associated with people who share my politics but do not share my convictions about how to treat my enemies, especially those in authority, especially the ones we're protesting. To speak metaphorically, I do not want to be associated with men and women who are clamoring for Saul's execution. Yes, David was willing to rebuke Saul, to resist Saul, to disobey Saul, but he was willing to rebuke and disobey his own friends too. This needs to be a very important lesson for Christians in the public square. And it's an additional reminder of how difficult it can be to use Peter's words to honor the emperor. And so because following David's example can be so difficult, it might help for us to look a little bit more closely at this text to see why didn't David take this amazing opportunity? What was it specifically that stayed David's hand and I'm going to submit to you that there were three things in this text that stayed David's hand, that kept him from dishonor and from violence. And those three things are his conscience, the word of God, and humility. David was restrained by conscience, by the word of God, and by humility. Let's start with conscience. Look with me at verse 5. He said... Excuse me, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he... Or forgive me, I'm reading verse 6. Verse 5, forgive me, verse 5. That's the next point. <laughs> verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That's an, a metaphor in the ESV that he felt conviction his heart, his soul, his conscience bore witness against his action. David felt in his soul, he knew because of his conscience, that what he was doing was wrong. So we rem we're reminded in this that our conscience, your conscience, is a good thing. God has built it into you for a good reason. As Christians, we need to see our consciences as good. We need to see them as authoritative. We need to listen to our conscience. David did not bury this conviction. He didn't explain it away. He didn't ignore it. He obeyed his conscience and he repented. The Christian conscience is an important thing. If you wanted to see proof of this, we're not going to turn there today, but you can mark down in your notes 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8 is one of the greatest passages we have in the New Testament 
to show us how important the conscience is. In that passage, Paul not only declares that we are to obey our own conscience, but within the church, we are actually called to honor and obey the consciences of others. It's not just my conscience that matters to me. Your conscience matters to me. And Paul goes out of his way in that text to talk about how important it is that you and I honor each other's consciences, that I don't cause you to stumble, that you don't cause me to stumble. The conscience, as seen by Paul, is a good and precious thing. We need to listen to our consciences. However, what that text will also tell you, specifically in verse 7, is that even though our consciences are authoritative and they're good and they're precious, they are not infallible. Your conscience is fallible, which means it can be wrong. Sometimes our conscience is wrong in either direction. Sometimes our consciences forbid us from doing things that God is actually allowing. Other times our consciences can allow us to do things that God would actually forbid. And so this is why it is important for us to listen to our consciences, but it's crucial for our consciences to be biblically informed. Our consciences need to be biblically informed. Uh, by the way, this as a brief side note, but an important one. Having our consciences biblically informed is a great motivation for you to prioritize church attendance. One of the best ways for you to gradually inform your conscience over time is by spending time with Christians and sitting under the Word of God. You see, there, in my experience, there are many people who give up on church because they're not patient enough to deal with the gradual change that church brings. They go to church because they're depressed or they're sad or they're struggling, and they're told if you go to church, it will be good for you. It will help you. You need to go to church. And so they start going to church, expecting their lives to change, expecting things to get better, and what they realize is that every single Sunday feels rather ordinary. Few people walk out of one Sunday morning service and feel like their lives are any different. But I would submit to you, going to church is much more metaphorically like diet and exercise than it is like plastic surgery. It's not an overnight change. A steady routine of diet and exercise provides gradual change. You don't walk away from eating a salad any thinner than you walk away from eating a burger. You don't walk out of the gym with any more muscle than you walked into there with. You don't just eat a salad and you're thin. Go to the gym once and you're strong. You don't even notice the changes, but if you stick to it, if you're consistent over time, there are incredible changes. And this is how Sunday works for us. Each Sunday, individual on its own terms, is really not going to change your life that much. But a steady diet of gathering with the saints will inform your mind and your conscience of God's word. It will encourage you regularly to live lives of joy and faithfulness. We need to have our consciences biblically informed. And that leads us to our next point. What was the other thing that stayed David's hand? It was not just his conscience, but his conscience was properly informed by the word of God. It was God's word that stayed David's hand. Now let's look at verse 6. David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, 
to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David knew what God had done. David knew what God had spoken over Saul. He knew that it was God who put Saul in this position of honor. And this position confers to Saul a dignity that his person has not earned. So knowing what God said, knowing what God did, caused David to show a remarkable honor to Saul. And when I say remarkable, I mean remarkable. Because his, his, his honor is so comprehensive that it, it, it actually carries with it both a passive and an active honor. He shows a passive honor by simply refusing to do harm to Saul. But he also shows Saul a very active honor. He's not just passively not doing something. He actively does show honor. Look with me at verse 8. This is pretty remarkable. Before we read verse 8, keep in mind, Saul is trying to murder this man. David is looking at his murderer. And what does he do? Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David called Saul first by his proper title, my lord, the king. There was no name calling, no vulgar gestures, no threats. He respected him by calling him the lord, the king, and then he even bows to him and pays proper civil homage to him. And why? He told us earlier, because the Lord is the one who made Saul in this position. Because I know what God says about him. I know what God says about this office. I know what God has done. It was the word of God that caused David to respect Saul. And this goes for us. Keep your markers here and turn to Romans chapter 13. Keep your markers here and turn to Romans chapter 13. In other words, you may be tempted to say, well, yeah, but, I mean, Saul was the king of Israel. Of course he was the Lord's anointed. Of course the Lord chose, chose him. But, you know, my public leaders, my civil leaders, they're not the kings of Israel. They're not the kings of this special covenant nature. Why are you making this assumption? Well, it's not an assumption. This is the, exactly what the application the Apostle Paul makes. Look at verse, Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to do good, or rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of, there's that word, conscience. So our governing authorities are the Lord's anointed, because there is no authority that has not been put there by God. And you might say, well, no, 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 they can't be put there by God because they're evil. So was Saul. So was Saul. Even your evil authorities have been appointed by God. God put them there. 
They are the Lord's anointed. And so do you see that those who serve over us have been appointed and put there by God? You see, all I'm saying is that David knew something way before Paul knew it. David already understood, based on what God had done and what God has said, this principle of Romans 13. So we need to know God's word in order to honor our authorities. Because knowing God's word won't just teach us to honor our authorities, but it can help us in the finer details of how to honor and submit. Because here's the key. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 24. Before people rush too far ahead and make assumptions... David's own example from this text shows that the obedience we just read of in Romans 13 is not without qualification. David's own example shows us that Romans 13 is a general principle that has qualifications. And and here's what I mean by that. Let's look at just a handful of his examples from this confrontation he has with Saul. Look at verse 9 with me. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? In layman's terms, David just accused Saul's news sources as being fake news. David looked at all of the men whispering into Saul's ear and he said, Fake news. That's fake news. They're lying to you. They're telling you I want to kill you and I've proven to you I haven't. You're listening to fake news. To use a more uh, relevant example, David is accusing Saul of promulgating misinformation. That's one of Facebook's favorite terms right now. Misinformation. This post has misinformation. David has turned the tables and David said, Saul, the king, you're the one promulgating misinformation. You're the liar. And I can prove it. I am not trying to kill you. You're a liar. Or at least your friends are. At least your news sources are. So you see, it is not disrespectful to tell our public leaders they're misinformed. That's not an act of disrespect. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David not only rebuked Saul, telling him he's wrong, telling him he's in sin, but he even calls the judgment of God down upon Saul. May God judge you. May God be my avenger and pour out vengeance upon you. David's point is that I'm not going to kill you, but someone is. It won't be my hand, but someone is going to take care of you, and it's Almighty God. So what does this tell us? It is not an act of disrespect to our governing officials to tell them that they are evil, to tell them that they are sinful, and to call the judgment of God down upon them. It is not an act of disrespect to tell sinful leaders they will be judged by the wrath of Almighty God. Look with me at verse 14. David says, After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dead dog? After a flea? What what David is saying here is actually a little ambiguous in the Hebrew. Uh, Your Bible will translate it one way based on whether there's an exclamation point or a question mark. 
We don't quite know because both interpretations fit the grammar and the context. We don't quite know exactly what David's saying here. He's doing one of two things. He's either saying something similar to what Goliath said to him. Do you remember when David came out against Goliath with his slingshot? And Goliath said, what am I, a, a back alley dog that you come to me with sticks and stones? So, and what was Goliath's message? Goliath is basically telling David, wow, you have severely underestimated me. And that might be what David is saying to Saul. Who do you think I am? Do you think I'm just some dead dog? You think me and my men were just a bunch of fleas? He's, he's telling Saul, potentially, you have severely underestimated us. That's one interpretation. And that's, uh, well, I, I, yeah, like I said, question mark or exclamation point. The, if it's a question mark, then he's, it's more of a rhetorical question where he's actually admitting to be a dead dog. The other interpretation is that what David is saying is, I am worthless because, look, I'm not trying to harm you, so what threat am I to you? I'm no more of a threat to you than some flea or some dead dog is. So what would be David's point in this scenario? David would be accusing Saul of foolishly wasting time, resources, and energy to, to go after, taking 3,000 of his choicest men to go after what? A dead dog who poses no threat to Saul. He's, uh, he's either mocking Saul for severely misunder, or underestimating his enemies, or he's mocking Saul by wasting time and resources and energy that could be spent being a good king in Israel. And he's out in the wilderness, in the rocks, chasing after someone who poses no threat to him. So David is either mocking Saul on one hand or sarcastically mocking him on the other. But what's the point? No matter how you interpret it, David is not afraid to show some level of sarcastic mockery. There is a, a, a level of sarcasm and mockery permitted that we can give to our authorities without dishonoring them. Just one more example. I don't mean to spend too much time on this. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, this is how it ends. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went up home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. After Saul repents and they have this really touching moment, Saul's crying, they make a covenant. How does it end? Do they hug and shake hands and go back to Israel, friends? No. David still doesn't trust him. David distrusts Saul, and so what does he do? After they have this really touching moment, David turns around and goes back to leading his illegal militia. He turns back to disobedience. He turns back to breaking the law. There is some level of distrust and even disobedience that is permitted to Christians even as we are honoring our civil leaders. I can't put it more succinctly or more clearly than what this pastor said. He, he summarized it this way. Did David respect the authority that God established in Israel? The biblical answer would have to absolutely be yes. He respected the Lord's anointed in ways that stagger us whenever we think about it carefully. But now here's another question for you. Did David do whatever Saul wanted him to do? Did he stop running? Did he stop hiding? Did he turn himself in? Put those two answers together and you will see that respecting the authorities that God has established does not mean accepting their narrative of what is going on. 
So you see, God's word not only instructs us to show honor, but if we study it carefully enough and long enough, it will help us discover how to show honor. And what we see is that showing honor to our authorities does not necessarily mean laying down and doing whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. David didn't do that. Yet the purpose of this narrative is clearly to hold David up as an example of someone who honored his authority. Let me give you, let's, let's put this on the ground level because I know you're, you've probably got a thousand scenarios in your head and we don't have time to, to do judgments on those. Let me just give you one example, a real life example of something I led our church in. Well, it was a group. We led our church in that I, I think relates to this. Not long into the COVID pandemonium, we implemented some COVID policies of our own, even though we were not complying with the mask mandates. We did not feel our conscience would uh, permitted us to stumble your conscience if you didn't want to wear a mask. And so we disobeyed the masking orders. But in the process of that disobedience, we implemented some COVID policies here. We clumped the chairs out into little groups. We stopped passing out the communion and the offering plates. We had hand sanitizers available all over the place. And there were even many Sundays where I encouraged you after church, if you're going to stay and visit, would you please maybe do it outside? Now, why did we do all this? Let me just tell you, we were under no illusion that that was really doing much to mitigate the spread of COVID. We were under no illusion that all of us coming in this room together without masks, uh, it was really going to do much to just like kind of clump the chairs a little differently. We were not doing this for like scientific reasons. So why were we doing this thing that I knew was kind of useless, kind of pointless? When somebody does a useless thing, isn't that called virtue signaling? Were we virtue signaling? And you know what my answer is? Yeah, kind of. Yes. But before you get offended by that, let me ask you this rhetorical question. Was David virtue signaling in verse 11? Look at verse 11 with me. After Saul leaves, David approaches him and he holds up the robe. Verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Was David virtue signaling? I don't know, you can call it that if you want, but here's the point. David could have easily just walked away and never confronted Saul, and Saul would have had no idea what happened. It was important for David, though, to make an entrance. It was important for him to signal something to Saul. He wanted to signal. He wanted to communicate something. You can call it virtue, but what the text says is he wanted to reveal his heart. I have proof that I'm not just some rebel, jealous for power, who hates you and who's trying to kill you. I have proof that even though I disobey you sometimes, that's not what I want to be doing. I honor you. I love you. I want to obey you. And here's the proof. So when we stopped passing the plates and we clumped our chairs, that was our way of holding up our governor's robe and saying, look, we're not rebels. I know you think that because we're disobeying some of your orders. I know you think that we're just a bunch of spiteful people. We're bitter civilians and we're just mad at you and we don't like you. So we're just going to rebel against you because we don't like you. But that's fake news. That's not who we are. We want to honor you. We want to respect you. But you have pushed us to a place where we can't. 
And so we did these little things to show our government, we do respect you. And we're trying our best, but there are some things you've asked us to do that we just can't do. But look, we're trying our best. Call it virtue signaling. We wanted to signal something. Redeemer Christian Fellowship is not a ragtag group of disillusioned, bitter citizens who don't like the government and are just excited to disobey our lousy government. That's not who we are. At least it's not who we should be. We want to be good citizens, even though sometimes we can't. David wanted to be a good citizen, and he wanted to prove that to Saul. But let us now move to our last attribute, or not attribute, our last thing that stayed David's hand, humility. Humility. Look at verse 12 and at verse 15 with me. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Look at verse 15. May the Lord therefore be a judge and give sentence between me and you. See to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David spared Saul's life because he knew his place in God's story. He was humble enough to know his role. David is not judge, jury, and executioner over Saul. In the deep recesses of that cave, David had an opportunity to exact vengeance on his enemy. But David was humble enough to know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. This is right before what we just read in verse 13. Look with me in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Good. This so perfectly describes what happened between David and Saul. David recognized that vengeance and retribution belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is not part of David's job description. It's not part of our job description. It's God's job to bring about judgment on Saul. For practical purposes, though, I think just briefly let me clarify vengeance because I don't want people to be confused and then to go out into the world and misapply it. We are not, as Christians, we are not allowed to take vengeance. That's just not our job to duty. We, we leave that to God. But here's what that doesn't mean. Vengeance and self-defense are not the same thing. I just want to clarify that. Biblically speaking, vengeance is not the same thing as self-defense. Self-defense is permissible in Scripture. Uh, the Old Testament law permitted self-defense uh, according to the law. And it was Jesus himself who, before sending out his disciples, said, you've got two tunics, make sure you sell one of those and get a sword. You need a sword. Why do they need a sword? We know they weren't going out to kill people. Why do they need a sword? Self-defense. So self-defense is absolutely biblical. You have biblical permission to protect yourself, your family, and other innocent people from immediate harm. But there becomes a clear time when the opportunity for self-defense ends, and any further action beyond that point would no longer be necessary protection, but an act of retribution and vengeance. 
And that is not our job. It's also important to remember that the scriptures do not say that leaving vengeance to God means do absolutely nothing. Getting the civil authorities involved in a case in your life is what you're supposed to do. If someone commits a heinous crime, call the police or sue them, whatever you need to do. Because we already read from Romans 13 that right after God says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, it doesn't belong to you, don't seek vengeance, vengeance belongs to me, he goes on in, verse, in chapter 13, as we already read, to describe the government as he who does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So how do you leave vengeance to God? What does that look like? Call the cops. Report it. That's not vengeance. That's leaving it to God. It is not vengeance to get the authorities involved. But the key principle here is that David did not take matters into his own hands. God promised him the throne, and he decided to wait on God's timing because he was humble enough to know that vengeance does not belong to him. He is not Saul's judge. And guess what? I'm not Biden's judge. I'm not Grisham's judge. That doesn't belong to me. And so I encourage you to be like David. To have a biblically informed conscience which leads you to leave vengeance to God and to show honor to the Lord's anointed. I encourage you to be mindful of the ways that God might be providentially providing you with opportunities to show a countercultural honor to those he has anointed over you. And by the way, my hope is that you will show this honor to everyone the Lord anoints over you. We have been speaking mostly of public servants today, since that's relevant to the text and to our cultural circumstances. But civil magistrates are not the only people that have authority over you. The Bible tells us to honor our parents and to honor our pastors. And so my call to you is to seek then to honor not just your public representatives, but your parents and your pastors and your employers as well. And yes, they too are all fallible and there may come times where you have to stand up to them and disobey them. But even in those seasons, I pray that you will find ways to publicly show them that you honor them because they are the Lord's anointed. May you find ways to show that you long to be a glad and obedient subject. 